Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 57. The misery is beyond description. Last week, Nicholas I kept a firm control over Russia, but his overzealousness in pursuing a war with the Ottoman Turks is about to reverse the fortunes of Russia and the Romanovs. The aftermath of this war would set the stage for two world wars in the 20th century and would eventually doom the ruling family. Many view the upcoming Crimean War as the beginning of the end for the Romanovs, but as you've heard me say this before, I believe the seeds were planted with Paul I. It is his son Nicholas I who allowed the seed to germinate, grow, and by not fertilizing it properly, it became rotten and ill-equipped to handle the fast-paced new world around Russia. Alexander I defeated Napoleon, which showed that Russia was now on par with the rest of Europe militarily, all because of the westernization started by Peter the Great and pushed along by Catherine II. Whereas Paul halted his mother's policies, he did not abandon the westernization of the military. He wanted a bigger and better army. It was Alexander and his post-Napoleonic mystical era that the Russians do what Russian rulers do best, fall backwards, believing that the old ways are the best ways. And that tradition is how you keep power and make your people happy. It was this thinking, along with Nicholas's embracing the idea, that set the stage for disaster. The Russian military and its leader, the Tsar, saw no reason to continue modernization, as it had just now defeated one of the greatest generals of all time, they were whipping the Turks left and right, and helped his Greek brethren gain freedom. Then Russia fought a war against Persia, which was another brilliant defeat of a weakling, but another one for the win column. But because of this, they added parts of Armenia along with access to the Caspian Sea. And this was to cause problems. There were grumblings throughout Europe, with the British complaining the loudest. The Russians were getting too big too cocky for their own good. Revolutions were also springing up in France and Belgium in 1830, which appalled Nicholas. Had the people gone crazy? Only an autocrat could rule his people, not the people themselves. This was most definitely not God's way. These revolutions must be the work of the devil. The next rebellion began in November of 1830 in Poland two years after Nicholas had himself crowned king of Russia's long-time enemy. A group from the Polish Military Academy, also known as the Polish Patriotic Society, stormed the Belvedere Palace in Warsaw with the idea of assassinating Nicholas's brother, Grand Duke Constantine. The plot failed along with another coordinated attack, but part of Warsaw was still under rebels' control. Constantine pulled out of the city to regroup. Negotiations were tried with the rebels, but they refused. Field Martian, Marshal Ivan Idievich led a force of 120,000 into Poland, hoping for a quick end, but was rebuffed by strong resistance. Idievich died of cholera in June of 1831 and was replaced by Marshal Ivan Paskovich. Paskovich brutally suppressed the rebellion and was thereafter given dictatorial powers over Poland, after his capture of Warsaw on September 8, 1831. The Polish Constitution was abolished and replaced by the Organic Statute 
which basically made the country a Russian state. The country was forced to Russify, the Catholic Church's lands seized, and the people forced to learn Russian. The rest of Europe was horrified, especially the newly freed French. Now they became the first to withdraw from the Holy Christian Alliance. They then joined up with Great Britain, Spain, and Portugal as an alliance of constitutional states, as Lord Palmerston, British Prime Minister, said was, quote, a powerful counterbalance to the Holy Alliance. Russia's only allies now were the other hereditary monarchies of Prussia and Austria. Now, instead of trying to reach out to his former allies, Nicholas became more reactionary. More censorship of foreign ideas and writings occurred. The secret police, enhanced by the edict of the third section, stepped up their suppression, and the Tsar became more and more of a micromanager. As Ricci and Duffy put in their book, Tsars, quote, his motto was obey without discussion. Now, as long as the people were ignorant of the outsider, liberal and evil world, the better for them. Peter the Great must have spun mightily in his grave. Nicholas also became more increasingly unhinged mentally from there because he was firing people for little inconsequential things. He had dissenters put into mental hospitals, others banished to Siberia. This went on for years until 1848, when Europe went through another set of cataclysmic revolutions. The French, Hungarians, and Croats revolted. The Austrian people went into the streets to protest, causing the Austrian king, Ferdinand I, to dismiss Metternich and replace him with a string of socially liberal ministers. Then the unthinkable occurred. The Prussian people demanded a constitutional assembly, which King Frederick William IV granted. Nicholas, on his part, offered to help his fellow monarchs in Austria and Prussia. Frederick William IV declined, but Ferdinand of Austria accepted, and Russia sent in troops to restore the monarchy. Eventually, all the revolutions failed, but Russia was no longer seen as an ally, but the big bully from the east, too eager to intervene and stick their noses into other countries' business. Sound familiar? The stage was now set for the first in a series of humiliating wars Russia was to plunge into. The fuse was set back in 1840 over a dispute concerning who would control the Christian holy places in Jerusalem and throughout the Holy Land, the Orthodox or the Catholics. Nicholas made two demands of the Sultan, Abdul Majid I, one to give the Orthodox control over the Holy Land, and second, to give full rights to all Orthodox Christians throughout the Ottoman Empire. The first demand was agreed to, but the second, well, that one truly rankled the chain of the Sultan, as he viewed that as a personal affront to his rule. In June 1853, Nicholas had his armies invade Moldavia and Wallachia. The French, now ruled by Napoleon III, had their fleet moved to the eastern Mediterranean quickly, followed by the British. Their emissaries warned Tsar Nicholas that if they did not leave the captured territory or if they attacked the Turkish fleet, then they would declare war on Russia. Nicholas foolishly believed that his allies, whom he had just helped down, put down to, uh, the rebellions, would just jump in and help. What he didn't realize is they had no such intention. They viewed the Russians with great distrust. Not only that, 
but there was a great fear amongst all of Europe that the weak Turks would easily fall to the Russians, giving them total control of the Dardanelles, the Black Sea, and all the eastern routes into the Mediterranean. This was totally intolerable. Of course, not heeding any advice, since those around him were cowed by the Tsar, Russia attacked the Turks despite diplomats warning against it. They had one smashing victory after another against the overmatched Turks. The British and the French warned Russia once again that they would attack full force if the Turkish navy was hit. In March 1854, Great Britain and France decided to declare war on Russia. The Austrians now sided with the Allies and demanded that the Russians leave Moldavia and Wallachia, which they did to keep their supposed friends happy. It did little to help. The British, they were waiting patiently in the north, so as soon as the ocean had thawed, they pounced and destroyed the vastly inferior Russian navy in their ports in the White and Baltic Sea. Alexander and Nicholas's insistence on keeping the status quo and the Western ideas out didn't allow them to keep up with the times. But the worst was yet to come, especially for the Russian army. Ground troops of the combined forces of the Turks, French, and British landed on the western coast of the Crimea with the goal of overtaking the fortress city of Sevastopol, the city built during the reign of Catherine the Great under Potemkin. This was to be the site of the many killing fields that took the lives of hundreds of thousands of lives. More from disease, though, and famine than bullets and artillery shells. One example of the poorly equipped Russian army is when General Prince Menshikov led 30,000 men into battle to slow the advancing Allied troops, but he was crushed brutally despite amazing heroism on the part of the Russian men due to the vastly superior weaponry of the opposition. The Allies had carbines, which allowed for multiple shots to be fired before reloading, while the Russians, well, they had single-firing muskets. Again, the new beat the old, with the policies of Alexander and Nicholas causing unnecessary deaths of their countrymen. In October 25th of 1854, you have the famous battle at Balakavla, which was fought and has gone down in history as the Charge of the Light Brigade. This senseless slaughter that is told of in the poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson was repeated hundreds of times during the war. But the real horrifying thing about the Crimean War was not the fighting, which was hard fought, but the misery that the men were forced to endure. The losing side, the Russians, were to lose approximately 143,000 men, of which 89,000 died of disease and famine, or 62% of the total casualties. The Allies, now these are the winners, lost 350,000 with similar percentages caused by disease and famine. By December of 1855, the siege of Sevastopol began. It raged on for nine months until September 1856. The troops on the Russian side fought bravely, as told by some, some of the stories from a young artillery officer named Leo Tolstoy. Had Russia built adequate roads and rail lines to the Crimea, they would have easily held out and probably won the war, as it was becoming increasingly unpopular back in the Allies' home countries because of the reporting 
and the photographs that were being taken for the first time in an international war. But the war was not going well on any front for the Russians, through primarily due to the lack of adequate transportation, but also due to the poorly trained troops and old equipment, as well as being led by an incompetent ruler stuck in the minutia and the old ways. Then, on March 2, 1855, Nicholas I, Tsar of all Russia, died from complications of pneumonia. While some have said that he committed suicide, it is likely he simply lost the will to live and calmly gave in to his illness. Next week, we begin our story of the life of the Tsar known as the Great Liberator, the ill-fated Alexander II. Now for a reading from Russian history. Today's reading comes from the manuscript called The Tale of the Destruction of Ryazan. It is a chilling reminder of the brutality of the Mongol invasion of the 13th century. And then they took the city of Ryazan on the 21st day of December. They burned to death the bishops and the priests and put the torch to the holy church. And the Tatars cut down many people, including women and children. And they burned the holy city with all its beauty and wealth. And not one man remained alive in the city. All were dead. All had drunk the same bitter cup. And there was not even anyone to mourn the dead. Neither father nor mother could mourn their dead children, nor the children their fathers or mothers, nor could a brother mourn the death of his brother, nor relatives their relatives. All were dead, and this happened for our sins. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, I'd like to ask for a favor again. Please go to iTunes and give me a favorable rating. Of course, that's if you like what you hear here, as it's going to help me move up the podcast ratings and get more listeners. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, where you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. Now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.